Hi guys! Today we have the co-founders of Evolved Play, Kevin Caldwell and Dr. Kelly Tran. Previously, Kevin was a senior development lead on League of Legends at Riot Games, and Kelly was a professor at High Point University. Their company, Evolved Play, focuses on the integration of learning and education within kids' games. And even though games are usually something that we think of for kids, most of the topics that we've covered so far in the games that we've discussed have been games for adults. So this is the first time that we've really gotten to dive into that topic, which I think is very exciting. If you like this episode and you like this kind of content, remember to like and subscribe so that you can see more of it in the future. And if you have any questions for any of us, please leave them in the comments down below and we will be sure to answer them. I hope you enjoy the episode. Buddy, how are you doing today? Hey, Ari, how's it going? Hi. Hey, good. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> we've got a big audience today. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, we've got Kevin Caldwell and Kelly Tron. And uh, man, uh, I think probably the coolest thing about you guys, in addition to all of the injury history stuff, of course, uh, is you guys actually working in a hybrid of games and education, right? That we are. Game, games and learning uh, is, is my preferred uh, way of phrasing that. <laughs> yeah, it's less school-esque. <laughs> so tell me about your company. It's called uh, Evolved Play, is that right? Yeah. Uh, three seconds, sorry. <laughs> so Evolved Play uh, yeah, is a, is a game-based learning company. I uh, haven't quite figured out how to exactly um, sort of call out uh, what we're doing in, in sort of... Uh, non-industry terms, but um, effectively we're, we're trying to create really compelling, engaging game experiences that uh, provide learning opportunity and learning moments um, within those games. Uh, I think there's there's been a lot of games that we've all played growing up uh, and sort of throughout our, our gaming histories that um, we've learned things from. Uh, for me, one of the early memories was uh, playing Ashwin's Call and learning uh, Roman numerals uh, based on their economic uh, system. And um, you know, that's that's one of the things I go back to is, is uh, sort of a basis, um, kind of an inspiration for what we're doing. That's pretty awesome. Um, Kelly, what are some of your favorite games as well? Um, in the learning space or in a more general way? Because that, that, uh, <laughs> that could go on a while. Um, uh, yeah, so thinking about in the learning space particularly, uh, I think part of what is motivating us is a lack of um, a lot of really great educational games or learning games. And there certainly are um, a number of them out there. But uh, in general, a lot of games have sort of learning objectives that are maybe slapped onto the mechanics of the game or the narrative of the game, as opposed to being integrated where you have this match between what you're doing in the game and what you as the player or user are supposed to be learning. Uh, and so when I met uh, Kevin, which actually thanks Alex for introducing us, um, that is how we know yeah. each other, yeah. Um, uh, you know, we were just really aligned and thinking about that, uh, that kind of, alignment between game mechanics and, and learning outcomes. Uh, and we were just like, yeah, maybe we can do this better, right? Which, uh, you know, is sort of one of the premises of, uh, of our company, certainly. Yeah, and I think I've said that more than a few times, right? That game mechanics reflect the human psychology, right? And the way that we learn and interact with games, it's the way you learn and interact with the universe, right? So it makes sense that you would naturally want to bring these things over. Yeah, um, I think it's that uh, we're a byproduct of our environment. Um, so, you know, that's that's one of the ways in, in which we're looking at uh, this is, is creating a digital landscape, a digital environment uh, that can, you know, help uh, help kids learn and, and families learn uh, in really productive, healthy ways um, that, you know, haven't really been uh, heavily touched on in, in our sort of academic uh, early childhood development uh, area of focus. So Alex introduced the two of you. Um, were you both working at the same company at the time? Oh man, so this is uh, this is a true COVID time story. So uh, I actually met Alex on Clubhouse where we were hanging out a lot uh, in one of the groups there, the Game Industry Cocktail Hour group. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to leave. So I came from a university position uh, and I knew that I wanted to leave for a number of reasons. And I was kind of on the job market. I was you know, starting to do interviews. And one day uh, on Clubhouse as part of that group, there was like a job fair. And so it wasn't even in the job fair, it was in like, 
practice your pitches for the job fair and I just like popped in and everyone was like oh wait you you want a job and then Alex was like hey go talk to my buddy Kevin and then it was like the funniest thing where it's you know these these two total internet strangers but you know right away um well not to speak for you Kevin but I, I was kind of like yes like this is somebody who who I think gets it and, and is aligned uh and we kept talking from there and uh then it was like literally right before my contract was due to to resume my uh my professorship uh and it was like the day before and Kevin was like you want to come on uh so it was like this really funny whirlwind thing and one of those things we're all remote that uh you know i don't think would have happened uh before the pandemic and before you know uh, i think online networking you know was of course always a thing but was such a thing where it's like this seems like a totally reasonable thing to do is just jump in with these uh internet strangers essentially <laughs> i think you're safe i think you're safe uh speaking for me in, in, in that context it was it was a very um <laughs> warm, easy connection in, in terms of, you know, being on the same uh, page in a lot of ways about uh, the current state of games and, and educational games and, and sort of learning software. Uh, and yeah, I, th I think I was on, I think I was on vacation uh, and you were, you were sort of nearing that point, that moment. And I was like, all right, let's talk, uh, you know, and sort of went out and, and was uh, talking on the phone, uh, you know, out, outside. And uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Uh, I think from, from day one, it was a, a very easy connection. Yeah, definitely. So very, very uh, great um, senses there, Alex, on on making that uh, introduction. Thank you. Yeah, uh, well, I, I glad to say that was an easy connection. Um, actually, I think that's a good uh, segue into your back individual backgrounds, right? Um, one of the things we often hear upcoming new uh, students say is, oh, man, do I need this specialized degree? Do I have to be this type of game developer? Do I have to take this lesson, know this engine to get into the industry? And I think that your diverse backgrounds actually showcase that's just not the case, right? So maybe we start with Kelly and go for background and then go over to you, Kevin, and then we'll talk about some of the interactions you and I had and see where conversation flows naturally from there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so I've been all over the place, as I think many people in the game industry have been. You know, a lot of people have these kinds of winding paths. Uh, and as um, a former professor of game design, I actually have a lot of thoughts um, as to, you know, the, those sort of paths that you were talking about, Alex. Uh, but I'll save those for now to just say that uh, I got my PhD at Arizona State University in learning literacies and technologies. Um, and I was especially interested in games and game design and the ways that games can support learning. Um, uh, before that, I uh, was actually studying digital arts and sciences. I, I planned to go into industry right away, but I took sort of a detour into academia, if you will. Um, and so I've done a lot of research around um, players and communities, and actually specifically around families and intergenerational play. So it was a really, really nice fit um, that uh, you know I, I was able to find with this project that I'm on with Kevin now. And um, so you know I have a research background, I have a design background, I have a bunch of kind of weird things that. Uh, fit together, which, you know, I think ultimately, uh, you know, makes people stronger designers and stronger sort of uh, um, people generally, you know, I think having those kind of diverse uh, experiences is, is a really, really nice thing. Yeah. So uh, in, in terms of my background, um, I, I graduated in 2007, which was uh, during the recession uh, with a degree in industrial design, which, um, you know, there were there were no industrial de design jobs in uh, Southern California during the recession. And um, you know, had a had a friend that worked at Blizzard, and um, you know, had sort of grew up with Blizzard games, having a passion for everything Blizzard, and uh, he's like, "Hey, why don't you you know come test on the night crew? We've got some positions open," and um, you know, applied and uh, kind of got my got my foot in the door um, testing World of Warcraft Burning Crusade patch two point four, uh, which was the Brewfest patch, and um, you know, had uh, you know, prior to that uh, a lot of experience in in teams. You know, grew up playing uh, three sports: uh, baseball, football, and hockey, and um, you know, kind of really, really had a, a knack for teamwork and communication and collaboration. And um, I was able to sort of very quickly transition out of, of uh, sort of that testing uh, role into a, a leadership position on the StarCraft II team. And, um, you know, that that early experience testing was really fundamental in, in me thinking about game development and, and uh, you know, how to how to sort of design games and, and produce games and develop uh, quality in, in games. Um, so yeah, you know, I think it's been 15 years now uh, in the industry. Yeah, I remember them those early 15 years. Man, everything is things have changed a lot. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, thankfully mostly for the better, I think. Um, though you know, 
you can never say where the path's going to take you exactly, right? Right. Um, and I think that's that's a fascinating thing is that you guys ended up in the same places working together as co-founders, right? Despite having come from, you know, like literally, like, hey, mechanical engineering background and worked in a studio for, you know, a decade. And hey, this is something I care about and I study and I've spent a lot of time networking and understanding. And now it's a question of how do you bring that uh, kind of intellectual research side and the practical boots on the ground side and how do you mesh that to bring an amazing new experience right now um one of the big questions i always have is communication styles language lingo what type of friction have you guys hit along the first few months of your journey together <laughs> okay hey, yeah no i uh uh I mean, I think that it's been really good. Um, actually, this is something we talk about on a regular basis uh, with our, our other co-founder, Sandy, um, as well as our, our other full-time person, Manjeet, where it's just like, we all get along really well. And I, I think part of it is just we, I think, are all just sort of like nice people. Like, that sounds like su such a reductive thing to say, but, um, you know, I think we all do take great care to, um, you know, consider each other's feelings and, um, you know, I'd say that the communication as a result of that is really open. And, you know, I think we're, we're generally transparent with each other as well. Uh, and it's been really interesting, you know, having this completely remote culture too. Um, and so, you know, we're like on Slack all day. Um, and you know, that it's kind of an interesting dynamic cause you know, I've, I've called Slack discord a couple of times by mistake, just because it's like, mm -hmm. I'm just got all these pings. Right. And, you know, sometimes I just, I'll go on there and like, I don't know if you saw Kevin the other day, Sandy wrote something. I'm like, that's a mood. And I'm like fire emoji, you know what I mean? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like too casual, but you know, this, this kind of also is how I would speak, um, you know, in real life, right? Just kind of translated. So, uh, you know, it's been an interesting thing to kind of feel, uh, uh, you know, how we build a culture, right? And we've talked about that quite a bit too. Yeah. Um, it sounds like. Go ahead. I was just going to say. It sounds like a really good company culture to me. I feel like a lot of what we view as professionalism um, is very old fashioned, but more than that, sort of has a lot of classist undertones that are sort of meant to keep people out and make it an inaccessible space. So I like the accessibility of feeling comfortable having a more casual conversation with your coworkers and having that friendly dynamic. I think that sounds really healthy. Yeah, Thanks. and for so much of history, right, uh, in the game industry, there's been all of this myth of the auteur, right? This one chosen one who makes decisions for the game and others execute, right? That myth <laughs> has lived for a very long time. And it's not only extremely false, whenever you run into it, it's almost inevitably toxic and a good sign to get out. Yeah, uh, I'll just sort of add to that, um, you know, having spent a, a decade or so in, in quality assurance, um, you know, kind of... of working my way up uh, the totem pole, so to speak. Um, I think a lot of, of those experiences that I had in, in those environments, um, you know, across multiple companies really helped me get a perspective on that, right? Um, I remember, you know, being in QA and, and sort of learning game development at Blizzard and, and sort of seeing, you know, how many people contribute to a game uh, and how many people from different experiences and with different skill sets and different, you know, perspectives um, really really set a foundation for me in terms of, of what kind of company and what kind of culture uh, we want to create um, and, and sort of how we work together. Um, the last last couple of years uh, at Riot, um, I had a really unique opportunity to work sort of cross-functionally across, um, I think, 40 different disciplines. And um, it was one of the most unique experiences in sort of recognizing that, um, you know, everybody has a, a, a valid perspective, a different perspective. And um, how do you make space for that? Uh, we, we did a lot of work on um, you know, trying to trying to figure out how to facilitate team and, and product development, uh, you know, and, and sort of product release with as many voices represented as possible. Um, and so, you know, in, in working towards starting this company and building it and, and sort of, you know, looking at uh, who to bring on, it was really important to me that, um, you know, we kind of have that that culture from the beginning. And I just want to like emphasize for the audience that, you know, those um, type of cultures that I mentioned before are certainly not the only ones. There's a, many, many game studios. And in fact, I'd say the majority of game studios I've interacted with are kinder, you know, nicer environments, right? There's certainly still some of those extremists out there, but there are a lot of industries and groups that are about like, hey, how are the teammates feeling? How do we work together? They may not be making the cutting edge crazy thing, but they do exist. And they're, they are definitely something to be looking for when you're in the market. Um, I remember one of my friends, um, actually it was one of my previous roommates. Um, her name's Kitty. Hi, Kitty. Um, 
was uh, went through four companies in a year. And uh, I'm not going to say too much, but went to one of them just was like, Alex, I'm constantly stressed and working out all the time just to keep like myself sane. The next one was like, oh, hey, this one's way larger and more successful, but I feel like I'm, you know, not finding my own place. And then this, then a couple, another one, she was like, this one is great, but it's just, I don't connect to the product. And then the last one, she's like, ah, oh, this one, we're making games and contract for other developers, but everyone's taken care of. I have a place. I understand what my, my purpose is. And you know what? I love the community that I'm part of. And I think that's so, so important when you're working on a team together, because you're going to be spending a majority of your life with these folks, even if you aren't working overtime, right? Sharing ideas, needing to be vulnerable, expressing those ideas and being able to work through difficult problems, right? And in some ways it's an extremely serious relationship. And other times you want to be able to have levity and lightness and moments and an alignment and how you connect with each other. So um, what can be a completely viable environment for one person can be completely mismatched for you. Um, did you have any moments like that in your career, Kevin? Because I know I certainly did. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I've had a number of them. Um, you know, some have, have been really special, like like you're sort of saying in the positive, and um, some have been really alienating. Uh, you know, part of part of that experience was also sort of role for me when I transitioned into my first uh, director role. Um, it was one of the most like sort of alone, like one of the moments that I felt most alone uh, in my entire career was, um, you know, kind of growing up in these very uh, um, collaborative sort of jovial, you know, um, uh, friendly QA environments where you're sort of working elbow to elbow with everybody and, and like you really get to know people. Uh, and then all of a sudden I was the boss uh, in, a, in a company that um, you know, was very corporate and, and very uh, top down and, and sort of very uh, perhaps legacy um, corporate culture. And uh, I just I just felt so alone and out of place. And, you know, I ended up sticking with it for uh, a couple of years, um, you know, and uh, but when I left, it was such a huge, uh, a huge breath of fresh air, um, sort of recognizing that uh, that environment was not a place that I felt comfortable or, or uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. you... And Kelly, uh, you you said you have a PhD, so mm -hmm. you're a doctor, and I mean that's yes. something that <laughs> takes a long time to accomplish. And to it get does. to the place that you were in in your career, um, did you have any experiences like that? I mean, you said that you were. Uh, your contract, I think you said, was running out at the time. Yeah, and... mm -hmm. yeah. It was. So a... I guess I'm wondering what that was like. Yeah, it was a, a decision racked by all kinds of existentialism. I guess uh, you know it, it's it's tough. I think you know, especially in academia. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time, uh, you know, training a particular skill set. Most people in academia assume, you know, I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to do that forever. Um, and so recognizing that uh, maybe that wasn't my path, at least not for now, um, especially, it was a really tough decision. Uh, and it's something I talked about with a lot of people and especially, you know, my, my mentors in academia and, and outside of academia and my friends. And uh, funnily enough, um, you know, I'm convinced that it's like a social, a thing that spreads socially because I actually had um, a number of friends also leave academia at around the same time I did. Uh, COVID, oh. COVID really broke educators. Uh, check on your educator friends because they're not okay. Um, you know, <laughs> know. So, so it, you know, I, I was already sort of leaning in that direction. And then, you know, once the pandemic happened, I, I did a lot of uh, sort of thinking about my life and what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, I haven't regretted it one bit, though. I, I have to say, um, you know, for all of the like, is this right before I made the decision? Once I made it, um, I know I had done the right thing. I don't think Kevin, I've even talked to you about this, but um, you know, I like have zero regrets. Uh, I, I tell my colleagues sometimes that, that still work at the institution I worked at. I'm like, text me when something annoying happens, so then I don't have FOMO. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the only thing I really I miss is students. Like, I miss my students, and you know, I miss my colleagues too because I had some really wonderful colleagues, and I miss hanging out with them. Uh, but you know, I, I miss having students, and I miss you know doing that kind of mentoring. But you know, the thing is, there's a lot of room for that um, in other venues. Certainly. Um, and so, you know, that's the only thing I miss. Like, other than that, I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like, I'm I'm so much happier. <laughs> now, Thank you for sharing. To any, so, yeah. Was that connected to any additional 
purpose or discovery about who you were as a person or? Yeah, actually, Alex, there's a number of things. Um, one is that uh, I really wanted to have my hands on something in a more uh, sort of tangible way. So uh, one of the things about academia is, you know, it takes a very long time for things to get published. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, I wrote this five years ago, it's not even relevant anymore. And I'm still trying to, you know, go through the, the publication process. Um, and, you know, I'm just somebody that I think has always been a little more creatively oriented. And so um, not being being able to really do that kind of work was really hard on me um, because you know I, I want I wanted to, to have more creativity and another thing is that uh, you know I think in terms of industry right it's really important to see role models of um, you know I uh, am a woman I am uh, uh, half Vietnamese first generation and uh, you know I don't see a lot of people like me uh, especially in leadership positions and so you know realizing that I think where I can have the biggest impact is actually being in the room, right? I thought it was in the classroom, but I think actually uh, being in the room, making decisions, being there for uh, uh, people, I don't wanna say look up to, cause that sounds kind of aggrandizing, but you know, somebody visible, right? And uh, somebody mm -hmm. who maybe now in this role can mentor people like me and and, and elevate other people. That, that if you're talking about the kind of sense of purpose, yes. um, that's certainly the sort of grander uh, uh, idea behind all this. And it's one of the things that did make it easier to make my decision. Uh, because, you know, having that sort of purpose of serving others, I think, makes decisions easier, frankly. And, you know, uh, I remember, you know, when I decided to start teaching, um, it was kind of the opposite thing. I've been in the industry for a very long time. And I'm like, you know what? Um, people came to me like, can you just explain a couple of these things that I do? And I kept getting the same question. I'm like, you know, I could probably just make this into some material. And then I did doing a bunch of one-on-ones with like eight students. Like, this will be a one-time thing. I'll put make price the bar crazy, like $1,000 or $2,000 a student and it all sold out. I'm like, oh my goodness. Okay, well, <laughs> apparently there's demand for this. Um, mm -hmm. And then when you go through that, you're like, oh man. And now I've watched this, this when I first did my first class, it was six years ago. Oh my gosh. Uh, wow, I feel old. Um, and now I've gone on to see uh, them grow and develop. Uh, four of them have actually gotten jobs with former employers of mine. Uh, one went on to actually open a game, like a card game shop, and another one you know, went on to go actually completely change industries entirely, but sends me messages every six months being like, wow, just learning from this changed my life and how I treat others. And it's just like, ah, oh. you know, it's that sense of yeah. connection and legacy, right? That you're hoping to bring in the industry that you've already gotten to experience through education, right? And it's fascinating that we partition these things because there's so mm -hmm. much similarity there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, where uh, when I was like, man, you know, giving up teaching is hard, you know, like seeing, say, the venue that you teach in, right? It's like, okay, yeah. you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a particular form or in a particular place. Uh, this is something that is still open to me as an experience. And, and that actually helped a lot. So yeah, it is kind of, we've kind of converged from like opposite uh, uh, places, yeah. right? And I think having those <laughs> both perspectives, right, is extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. With your company, I did not realize how new it is and it's still pretty young. So I imagine a lot of the projects that you have worked on are still in early phases of development, but I'm really curious now, what kinds of projects are you working on? And at least for the stuff that you can share publicly that's not top secret, <laughs> I would love to hear about it. Yeah, uh, I don't know like that we're being super top secret about uh, what we're working on. Um, you know, we're, we're creating a, an adventure RPG with uh, game-based learning components uh, to help kids develop um, emotional intelligence, relationship skills, uh, and resilience. And um, you know, we we're we're in early testing. Uh, we just sort of hit a milestone in the last month um, that uh, where we've started to see kids, um, sort of five to ten, uh, be testing our game and playing our game and. You know, we're, we're approaching it pretty leanly. Um, you know, we don't we don't want to do the grand reveal. Uh, I think a lot of, of successful game projects, uh, you know, over the last couple of decades started out as very lean projects where they tried to activate and sort of engage with uh, a community sort of sooner rather than later. And um, that's that's definitely the approach we're taking. Uh, and um, yeah, we've 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 been doing uh, a lot of iteration. We've done a, like, I don't know, three or four different prototypes. And uh, I think in the last month, we've really started to sort of of hone in on um, kind of what the experience is that we're making it and why it's fun and, and like how we can uh, leverage it um, to sort of meet some of our, our learning objectives. So can we uh, hear maybe some, a couple of those lessons? Like what was uh, something you thought was fun that wasn't that you had to pivot on or something that what you didn't think was going to be fun and then turned out to be, and you just were like taken aback at it. <laughs> Kelly, do you want to take this one? I, I think, <laughs> 
think user testing with kids is like the funniest thing in the world. Um, so when I was, uh, uh, you know, a, a researcher at um, Arizona State, it was the same thing. We actually, for um, a National Science Foundation, we were making games and then, you know, testing them with uh, with kids. And the the gulf between like what you think the user is going to do and what the user is actually going to do for kids is so much wider than, than like in any <laughs> other context because they're just you know, you know it's so interesting you know they're like humans with totally different perspectives than you have um so you know we've been finding uh the kids really love just kind of exploring and and like moving around right like uh, kevin saw that last night uh where you know they just uh, there's a lot of little completionists where they're like i just have to go to every space and like see what's happening um uh you know which we were uh have sort of a goal or game so it's it's interesting to think about that and think about uh, it was also validating for directions we're moving for some of our designs where it's a little more open a little more uh, exploratory it's like okay kids do like this awesome um, <laughs> and uh, you know we we've done a lot of fine-tuning and a lot of things that you know kids also give great feedback and very honest feedback uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know <laughs> that uh, they're usually not too worried about hurting your feelings which is great because then we um, can iterate on that and you know some of the suggestions have come like straight from kids uh, uh, frankly, that have been really, really nice. Yeah, one of the one of the sort of specific points um, was from our first play test. Uh, we had a door, a simple door puzzle, right? Like not not had a key, and and there was a door and a place to put the key. And um, you know, the way that we had uh, thought about that UX and instrumented the UX um, was too hard, was too difficult. Like the they, the child couldn't figure out exactly like what they were supposed to do with the UX. And um, I think that that's that sort of, of feedback on, you know, we're dealing with a lot of different sort of literacies in terms of, of you know, reading and oral and, and digital and uh, game literacy in terms of what kids have been exposed to up until that point in their life, which, you know, five to 10 year olds have not experienced uh, a ton of, a ton of, you know, product or, or uh, life or technology or what, what have you. Um, and so to see that sort of on the first play test, uh, them getting stuck at that place, I was like, Oh, it's such a a no-brainer. Like, of course that that uh, you know was was going to be too hard. Uh, why did we think that was going to work? Um, you know, and, and I think that's that's one of the the fun parts about lean development, right? Is like very quickly iterating and prototyping and getting things in front of kids and and you know or players and, and getting their feedback because uh, you never know what they're going to enjoy. Um, you know, and and to sort of echo Kelly, like. The exploration, the discovery, um, that sort of journey is is very synonymous with life. Maybe kids don't necessarily know that, but uh, you know, it's like how do you sort of navigate? Where do you choose to go? Why do you choose to go there? What are you looking for? Um, you know, kids don't necessarily uh, have the answers to those questions, but they they have the motivation, they have the interest, um, which has been really exciting to see. Kelly, did you? Did you want to? Did you want to talk about the the energy uh, energy mechanic at all? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if we we're getting that granular with the mechanics, but um, yeah, we had sort of like a roll to move mechanic um that uh yeah essentially you know it, it was um themed differently than being like a d6 but it was a d6 uh and you had to like every time you move you had to roll to move and then like kind of like you know progress around uh and then we found you know like uh actually um people on our team as well as kids just kind of like spamming that and uh you know a kid finally like just said specifically like hey this uh this mechanic is kind of whack like you know it's in phrase <laughs> like you know it's just like yeah i think it would be better if like this wasn't in the game and maybe you did this other thing Thing instead i was like okay nobody thinks this is fun like this just like needs yeah. to go so but you know like kevin was saying lean development it's like well we're already you know on that uh on that iteration right of of being able to to change that and rethink the way the movement yeah the movement works yeah mm -hmm. and this actually is a really common pattern i want to call out to the designers right listening uh which is you know um knowing when and where to put uncertainty and the way of expressing uncertainty is incredibly important uh, when you put uncertainty at the front of a decision, right, like uh, a D6, right, it either doesn't matter, like Mario Party, right, we're just going to hit some random square and you're going to play a mini game no matter what happens, right, um, or it ends up being frustrating because it feels like it controls your freedom and decision making. Whereas if you just give that energy and they can choose how much to burn at this point and save some for later or go on, I, I don't know the exact mechanics of your game, right, it puts the empowerment on how they engage with the product back in the hands of the player themselves, which mm -hmm. ends up being usually a more joyful experience, even though at the end of the day, it's the same sort of uncertainty that you can put at the end of their decision as opposed to at the beginning of the decision. Mm -hmm. Very, very Alex, wise. how dare you say that the role doesn't matter in Mario Party? Whoever gets the highest <laughs> number is going to get Stop. the star. 
Sure. Mario Party. Oh, sure can I go is. on a Mario Party tangent? Go Mario Party. I, I'm, just saying, about... <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I had the in in college. I had the Mario Party Grand Champion belt. Okay, when we left college, <laughs> and I did this by always being in second place until the last round. Because, that is oh the only way. <laughs> Why is that belt not uh, uh, above your picture back there? That's that's what I want to see. Uh, because, because Ian took it back afterwards. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead, please. Go ahead. Um, oh, yeah. So, so you know, if you think about what games teach you, right, through their mechanics, Mario Party teaches you that none of your actions matter and you live in a cold and uncaring universe because I am convinced <laughs> that it's just like, no, like, if, especially if you have like an AI, like a, a player, right? If you don't have four players, like, I feel like there's always a chosen one. Like, it, it just totally gives you this feeling of, of like no agency. And depending on the iteration of Mario Party, right, some of them just have these, like, at the end, it's like, oh, this person gets a star for like an arbitrary metric that you did not know that they were measuring yep. and it's very unclear. Um, and I, I do enjoy Mario Party, I should be clear, because, uh, you know, the, the mini games are fun, but the overall, I, I like, I mean, Kevin knows, like, I think this is why I'm so like anti-roll to move as like a general thing. I think Mario Party <laughs> traumatized me from yep. being like in in first place and then getting kind of uh, rubber banded back to the, to the end. So I don't know, I need to try the Alex maneuver. Uh, which is the, I think, official tactical name for, for what you do. Um, I, I haven't thought about trying to stay in second. Thank you. I also call, I also call it chosen one syndrome. <laughs> That's funny. That's the valid uh, mechanism for Mario Kart, too, because then you never mm. get blue shells. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mario Kart. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, man. Is it amazing just looking back, right, in this one series of games that came from a guy who had been making little things for a little while, it's utterly swept the innate world. Everyone knows who Mario is. Everyone has been in touch by those games and those products. I actually just picked up um, Satoru Says, uh, the book, uh, just a few days mm -hmm. ago, which is from the now uh, past uh, president of Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because it's, there's a few things they did right and consistently, right? They introduced ideas, they then escalated them, and they mixed them up. And they just repeat this over and over and over again. And it's those little cycles that come back over and over again that makes it, one, familiar as a Nintendo game, makes it accessible to a wide audience, and just makes it fun to play with because you kind of know what you're getting, but you don't know exactly how it will be expressed. Um, and uh, I don't know. To me, that's what's really interesting about game design. It's all these micro patterns that re-express themselves. Um, mm -hmm. But what was the thing that first captured your mind, Kelly, when you were like, I have to get into game design and I'm going so hard on this, I'm going to become the PhD in design? Um, so I, uh, up until that point, you know, I was like, I'm going to go into industry. I wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to do it. Um, I was doing like a lot of 3D modeling as well as game design. Um, and this is while I was getting my master's degree. And uh, there was actually a local uh, sort of uh, a place where I was getting my degree that sort of everybody went to work for afterward um, yep. that I was like, yeah, I'll probably end up there, you know, just trying to figure it out. And then I actually um, read a book by my mentor, James Paul G, um, I, which is all about games and learning. And he's kind of uh, who kicked off like a, a lot of the games and learning movement, right? And looking at games, at commercial games as like great learning tools, right? Like, you know, oh, Portal is actually an amazing like physics learning game. Um, and I, my mind was so blown by this. I was like, oh my gosh, like, yes, that I've never thought about it like this before. Uh, and I got so into it that I was like, okay, I'm gonna write my thesis now. Uh, instead of doing a thesis project, I'm going to research the community uh, of Minecraft modders. Um, and I just like got so into that and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna just see if I can like work with these people, right? Work with uh, James Paul G and, and his wife, Betty G who's also a games and learning scholar and uh, they wanted to work with me. So, uh, you know, it's just like, it's like with Kevin, it's like, hey, it was a match. Um, so, so I moved out to Arizona, um, to Arizona State and uh, ended up just really loving it and, and uh, really getting into that sort of nitty gritty of, you know, how games are, you know, and, and commercial games as well, right? Not just sort of educational or serious games are just really, really great devices for learning because they're really compatible with how humans learn naturally. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, of research in, in education and learning sciences around games. Uh, and then, you know, it, it all kind of cycles back around to like, oh, but then I want to make like the the amazing game. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those, I, mm -hmm. I also have ADHD and that's, uh, it, explanatory i think to a lot of like my <laughs> my life path where i'm like this is really interesting now um because i i just find uh so many things fascinating but yeah i just mm -hmm. was felt really passionately about it and on the topic of inspirations uh kevin i believe uh your kids right have been an inspiration for you do you want to go ahead and talk about that a little bit yeah um so yeah our daughter uh kenzie is is almost two she's uh 
November 1st, she'll be, she'll be two. And, um, you know, my wife and I, uh, so I started working at age of learning on, on ABC mouse, I think in like 2014, 2015. And, uh, we were, we were trying to, trying to have kids at that point. And, um, you know, working on, on, on ABC mouse was, uh, a very inspirational sort of, of project, right. Um, you know, globally sort of resident, uh, early childhood education, a lot of gamification in, in terms of trying to help kids, uh, develop a love of learning. That was, that was what they were all about. And, um, you know, around the same time, uh, started to develop, a, a, an interest in positive psychology and well-being science. And, um, you know, didn't, wasn't really able to, uh, you know, pregnancy didn't really take, uh, for a handful of years. And then, um, sort of, of when it, when it finally took and, and she was born in November, uh, 2019, um, that was a, a really big motivator for me to sort of, of take this risk and, and, uh, jump off, um, you know, from, from riot, uh, which, you know, talking about team experiences was, was one of the best team experiences that I'd had. Um, but really yeah. like, you know, trying to create, uh, something for her, uh, as, as sort of enjoyable as the games that I grew up playing, um, you know, and, and as, as potentially impactful as, uh, something like an ABC mouse or, you know, some of the other really, uh, great educational games out there really came into focus and, um, you know, was, uh, just really motivated by, you know, her coming into the world, uh, was not quite, um, uh, an easy entry. It was, uh, she had to be resuscitated. My wife, um, uh, was almost passed as well during the emergency C-section and, um, it just, you know, it brought everything into focus for me in, in terms of, of what was important to me, you know, what I wanted to do uh, you know, with the rest of my career. Um, I think, you know, when I was, I think when I hit the 10 year mark or decade in the games industry, I was like, wow, I've seen a lot, like I've worked on a lot of big projects, a lot of, you know, smaller projects and, and everything in between. Um, you know, how do I want to, how do I want what do I want to do for the next 25, 30 years? Like, how can I, how can I better myself? How can I, you know, better the world? How can I sort of create, um, that future that I kind of, you know, dreamed about or envisioned as a kid playing games growing up, you know, MMOs and, and the, the sort, um, just like, I don't know. It, it was a massive motivation and continues to be right. Just seeing her being at home, working in the office, like seeing her come and knock on the door or the window and like, you know, come into our meetings. Um, yeah, we, we all get the, the benefits of this. And it's been a bit, been a big motivation for thinking about how to create a company, right. And, and how to structure, you know, a culture and, and, you know, create a work, uh, you know, manage work-life conflict. Um, you know, got past talking about it as a work-life balance because, you know, at some level of work does not equate to your life. Uh, it's a, it's a quadrant. It's a slice of the pie. Um, it's not, uh, it's not everything. And, you know, for some people it is, um, which is okay. You know, my mom, uh, is a fashion designer and she it loves fashion design. It is like her entire, entire world, um, you know, outside of, of, you know, me and, and, uh, her family, but, um, <laughs> you know, I really wanted to create something that, uh, would allow us to kind of enjoy our, our child and be there for a child and learn, you know, from her as much as, as she's learning from us. Um, and I think that's, you know, part of our, our aspirational, you know, four day work week is, um, you know, the recognition that, uh, we need diverse experiences to learn and grow. Um, we can't be stuck in an office, you know, in an office space, 40 hours a week, or, you know, in some cases, uh, like we did early in our career, Alex at Blizzard, you know, yeah, yeah. 60 oh, to 60 I to hundred hour weeks, right? Like, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you don't learn from that. You, you get stuck doing the same thing over and over and over. And, um, you know, want to, want to just kind of create that life that, uh, is balanced and, and, uh, um, you know, allows us to, to learn from, from the variety of experiences that we have at our fingertips today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to comment on the, the crunch thing, right? I remember having <laughs> a small pillow and one of those thermal blankets <sighs> that I kept in a shell, a drawer of my desk so that when hours got too late and I had to wait for a build or something to happen, I could just pull it out, grab a couch or a corner and take a nap for an hour or two. Right. Yeah. I mean, element that was on i think it was burning crusade crunch yeah and that was by far the worst at blizzard uh, and, i don't know i might want up there with, with the starcraft 2 crunch <laughs> it, it may have been i wasn't on i yeah. was on starcraft 2 in that capacity they just brought me in as a strike team yeah. so um but uh i remember seeing like i've been now almost two generation or two generations two decades right in game development and i remember seeing that change happened as you know um Kaplan and Rob and the others started having kids and families of their own. And all of a sudden this light went on and it was like, oh, and then I went to riot. And then this, then, um, what was it? Uh, Merrill had his first kid and the same thing happened. I'm like, ah, this is a light that goes on in developers heads when they realize there's more to life 
than us burning ourselves out to create a product. And it's unfortunate that it takes a personal experience for that. Some people to ground themselves in that. But I, I genuinely believe that the industry is learning that you just can't go all in like that, uh, whether it's Google at the four day work weeks or you guys are trying here or the remote home connection, right? Like my hope is to have kids someday and doing so I'd want to be able to be connected and a part of their lives, not just someone who's zipping around and disappearing constantly. Yeah, I think there's something a part of, of uh, you know, being youthful in our sort of uh, late teens, early 20s, where, you know, the late nights and the long nights and and they don't bother us as much, uh, you know, now in, in my mid uh, sort of going into late 30s, um, you know, I could only pull a, a late night or two in a week before, like, I'm just wrecked the next day, right? Um, you know, it's, it's uh, and, and it leads to burnout very easily. But, um, you know, in, in those sort of early, early years, it's like, you're sort of invincible, right? You grow up as a kid, you're like, oh, I can do anything. I can, you know, take all kinds of risks and not have any concern for my health. And then it's all of a sudden like, oh, you, you start to get a little aged <laughs> and you're and you're like, oh, the, you know, I don't recuperate the same way I did, before, uh, you know, did did last week. Uh, and, it, and it starts to it starts to give you that perspective. And I, you know, I think I think part of that self-management, um, you know, focus self-management is one of the things that we're focusing on with with our product is like how do we help kids you know develop those healthy habits and, and healthy sort of perspectives on um sort of longevity right uh um that's it's 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 a challenge <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and on that note everyone remember to hydrate <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i Whoa. i do think <laughs> that if there were more women in leadership to begin with at a lot of these companies where the crunch was so bad um, that it probably would not have gotten that bad because as unfortunate as it is, women have always been historically the ones who are the caretakers and have to think about being home with the family. Um, And it's probably sort of a catch-22 kind of a problem because having those really intense work weeks means that people who are doing the majority of the parenting can't come into those spaces, but by not having people in those spaces who are doing parenting, it makes them really inaccessible for people who are trying to have more aspects to their life than just doing that work. So I think it's great that you guys are approaching your company the way that you are. And I I wish it was more like that in more places (laughs) quicker. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, on that question, Kevin, so uh, when will you be retiring now that you've gotten pregnant and had a kid, right? Um, you know, that's a question clearly you need to be asked, right? <laughs> Just, it's it's insane. It's insane that that was ever a question in the first place, or that the presumption upon culture was so strong that you would ask anyone if they're going to quit their ambitions to just to raise a family, or to say that that is somehow an inferior decision in either direction, Right. Um, and I'm just glad things are improving because I'm, I'm certainly sick of those stories. Yeah. I love being a dad. Um, you know, there's, there's been, uh, you know, a reflection point here or there where it's like, you know, if, if, uh, money were not an issue, right. Like, I don't know that I would be doing this, right. It would be like, how can I spend as much time with my daughter, you know, helping her experience the world and growing and, and sort of learning, uh, how to take on the world when she's, you know, when she's old enough and, um, I don't know. It's, it's just like, you know, being at home, working from home, you know, seeing, uh, you know, how much work my wife puts into just kind of managing, uh, the day to day with her and, and, uh, you know, managing the household. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it's very hard to even imagine like how there wasn't that, that sort of cultural consciousness about, um, you know, women in the workplace and, and women in general prior to, you know, maybe it's not a prior to it's sort of perhaps generational shifts that we're seeing at play, but, um, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's it's full-time job plus. Right. Uh, and the fact that I am home and I'm able to contribute and and sort of lean in on that, uh, you know, is, is really rewarding, um, for me as opposed to, you know, being locked away in an office, uh, 10 to 12 hours in a day and, and sort of being completely disconnected from that lifestyle. Uh, I can't even fathom that. It's great that you can be with your family. It's so important. I remember when my father first, um, so I, we were, I, mean, I have a really strange background to that. My father was uh, at IBM, which was, uh, you know, a very, one of the old, old companies. And they actually tried to just pilot a work at home project uh, where they actually ran physical lines to our home so we could connect to the internet. This was back in, you know, 89, 91, 92, right? Way, way back. Um, and uh, the idea was, the whole idea was, hey, 
let's go ahead, see if you can actually effectively work from home, do coding, all of that. Um, and even when he did that, he would just completely shutter himself away and have no interaction, no sort of, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't present, right? He just was working in a different place. And so, um, and obviously that didn't last very long. And he was just like, I'm just gonna go back to the office. It's better. I don't have to deal with anything. Right. And I can get food and see my friends, whatever. Like, um, but like, I really love that not just all of us having to go through that experience of really being home present with ourselves in touch with others remotely has actually softened all of these barriers, right? Uh, when, I, when I started working at Moon, it was one of the very few companies that was doing remote work, right? And would let you work from anywhere. Now it's like, pff, we should all be considering this. And I just love that, you know, that shift is happening. Yeah. I'll just sort of note uh, that um, I think, you know, your, your dad's perspective or sort of like, I want to go back to the office um, is definitely something that I've that I've struggled with. Right. Is is around those um, those like perceived uh, kind of, I don't know, flow states or productivity states where you're like, oh, I've got, you know, I've got four hours to go into the office and not be interrupted by anything. Right. Um, those are those those kind of, of, of blocks are harder to come by. Right. Um, where it's like, you know, you, can't stop your daughter coming into the door and like knocking on the door and tapping on the window and be like, Hey, like it's me. Uh, and I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, love that. Um, you know, which, which definitely provides for more challenge in, in sort of figuring out how to be productive. Um, because I don't want to lock myself away. I don't want to be inaccessible to her. I don't want to be like her growing up having, you know, trauma related to me, like not being in, you know, being attentive to her, uh, which, you know, is, is part of, I think, um, I don't know, that, that growth uh, that we're all having. And if I can pivot just a little bit, I wanted to go back and ask you a little bit more about your RPG and what the story is, because you said that it has to do with <laughs> teaching kids emotional uh, maturity and sort of understanding themselves. It's not just sort of like math or spelling, which maybe some of that is included, but the values that you were talking about instilling seemed they really lit up a light bulb for me. So what's the plot line and how was that all connected? Really wish we had Sandy here. <laughs> I know, yeah, Sandy. <laughs> she's she's the, the mastermind behind all of that. Um, but I, I think I, uh, I might want to clarify. So the framework we're working from is uh, called SEL or social emotional learning. Um, so this is what um, a really sort of uh, maybe a reductive, but but I think good way of describing it is like, think of what Mr. Rogers is trying to teach you, right? So those kinds of, uh, what are sometimes referred to as soft skills, although there's certainly more to it than that. Um, and we're, you know, focusing on those. And, you know, it's actually really funny that you ask that because I keep joking that, uh, you know, gosh, I just wish we were making a physics game sometimes because I'm like, it'd be so much easier yeah. to just be like, how do we integrate <laughs> math into mm -hmm. like, you know, mechanics, right? Which uh, to everybody making a, a STEM game out there, I'm just kidding. I know that that's also extremely difficult, but, um, <laughs> You know, yeah, trying to translate that into, uh, you know, an experience where, uh, you know, how do we we model things like, you know, self-regulation uh, and in a game? Uh, that's kind of the challenge that we talk about every day. So um, I'll defer to Kevin in terms of uh, how much we want to talk about the plot. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know how much I want to get into it, but, um, you know, we're, we're doing something along the lines of a mystery adventure, um, you know something full of, of exploration and discovery, you know, talking about that journey of life and, um, you know, really keying in on, on relationships and, and friendships and, uh, you know, sort of, of helping each other out. Um, there's, there's a sort of cooperative, uh, element to that, but, um, you know, it's, it is, you know, sort of the power of narrative, right? If we, if we think about a lot of, of work that's been done in just sort of media and entertainment to, um, you know, move narratives forward in, in certain ways, uh, I think there's there is a really huge untapped uh, potential of narrative and at, and at least so far as an intentional usage of of narrative and um i think that's a lot of the uh sort of scaffolding the learning scaffolding that we're trying to bring in is like how do we carefully construct uh these narratives and these characters and these and these um sort of, of story arcs and sort of character relationships to uh showcase and model and, and sort of represent um you know what it is we're trying to help uh kids learn um, and, you know, there's a lot of, of nuts and bolts sort of, of related to that, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's just, uh, we want it to play and feel like any entertainment game, right? That's, that's kind of the promise of game-based learning as opposed to gamification is, uh, the idea that we can marry these, um, or sort of, of, of create a union between like learning objectives and, and entertaining, engaging, um, uh, game experiences. So, 
you know, that's, uh, that's, I don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I hope. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I have a lot of fond memories of educational learning type games that I played when I was a kid, as well as games that weren't specifically trying to be educational, but that still I learned a lot from. So I, I totally resonate with that. Um, and then there's also sort of something that I've noticed a lot lately in parenting, which is a lot of parents these days have issues with screen time and showing their children screens or trying to limit the amount that their kids are exposed to screens. So I'm wondering if you guys can weigh in on that or if you have any argument about it, if you try and persuade people or or anything like that. I'm concerned about it. <laughs> I'm definitely concerned about it. I think uh, I think it is something that uh, we should be concerned about. Right? Is is um, what are they what are they not uh, what are our kids not doing if they're sort of you know overusing screens and um, you know it's it's something that we're looking at in terms of how we design some of our meta systems. Right? Like we want scarcity of of the experience to be something that is. Uh, Sort of front and center like how effective does um you know a child engage with with uh our game and our experience and like how how are they most um sort of of effectively using that time to play the game that they have right um you know i think mm -hmm. i think our 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 uh intervention target and model is like we want kids to play you know twice a week for for 30 minutes max and then like we might uh give them some you know energy to to kind of play in addition to that but we don't want this to be um, you know, something that they, they can obsess over and sort of endlessly engage with. Um, you know, I think mm -hmm. uh, some of our, our early uh, days at Blizzard and, and sort of, you know, recognizing um, with World of Warcraft, the real life impact that, um, you know, how engaging and, and uh, dare I say addictive um, that game was at, at certain points in our lives. Like there were a lot of real world consequences as related as it related to, um, you know, adults and kids playing that game and, and sort of where, you know, mm -hmm. Where it ended up, what, what sort of outcomes were being derived from that, and it's and something we're definitely looking carefully at, um, because there is a is it is a concern, um, you know, for for me and my wife, like, because it's not just device screen time, right? It's it's all media. Yeah. Um, I think one of the one of the stats that we've um, looked at is, uh, you know, kids by the time they're eighteen will have spent fifty percent more time uh, being entertained, um, you know, on a screen than than learning in school. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's uh, that's a, a that's pretty. Cool wild um sort of stat to think about and um you know it, it's it's definitely front and center for us about every moment of the game like what are we doing with it like how are we how are we trying to engage kids and in, in what ways um but it's also you know i think a trade-off for us as well to think about like that entertainment value and, and engagement value if you will um as, as it relates to like how much learning are we baking into every each and every moment um you know where i think gamification is perhaps a little too heavy-handed where it's like every single second that you're looking at that screen needs to have educational value and that's not super engaging <laughs> yeah. yeah i love that you called out kind of world of warcraft on that too right because um i remember when one of the uh first players passed away in a net cafe mm -hmm. right while the designers got pulled into a room and like we had to sit down like okay what are we going to do about this right and in fact, even uh, the name of this company, GameDesignSkill.com, actually also has a secondary meaning, GameDesignSkill.com, right? To remind me and there's people who listen in that, hey, there are real life consequences, the choices you make in your game design decisions, right, upon other people. I, I don't bring that out perhaps in the most of the marketing, but it's there, right? <laughs> it's there to sit there kind of just remind you that, hey, what you do as a designer really matters, yeah. has an impact, and it changes people's lives. I mean, just to yeah. sort of echo that point with our with our uh, we had a session this week with a with a five year old and, um, you know, she uh, we definitely had an impact on her emotional state. Um, she was not happy at the end of at the end of the at the end of the game. She wasn't able to reach the objective. And uh, it was it was like you saw that that visceral reaction you know, of a five year old being very disappointed and upset and frustrated. And it was like. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do that to you, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, seeing was it the door. What's that? Was it the door? No, uh, it was something else, um, you know, that that sort of resulted in the end of, of her session. And um, mm. it was like, how, how but, you know, that 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 moment is also a learning moment. It is something that we're we are looking at. Right. Like, how do we help? Um, I forget what it's called. Uh, 
uh, I think Katie mentioned it the other week. Um, Kelly, was it productive failure? Um, you know, like, <laughs> how do you help kids develop uh, grit and resilience around, like, you know, their their emotions that get triggered by games, right? I remember growing up uh, playing Nintendo when my cousin was, was four years older than me, and uh, he would beat me at every single game. And it was one of the most frustrating experiences, like, now reflecting back on that, that I was a, I was a, I mean, I would, I would bash my controllers against the the console. I, yeah. I threw a, I threw a computer out the window. Like I wouldn't, oh. I wouldn't say that I was, uh, you know, very highly emotionally regulated at that point in my life. And, um, <laughs> uh, oh my God. you know, reflecting back on that, um, like, oh man, like, you know, how do we, how do we kind of recognize that that, that is the potential of, of game experiences, um, you know, especially yeah. in those sibling type of relationships, right? Like I was an only child. My cousin was four years older. He was basically a brother, um, mm -hmm. but he was better than me at everything. And like, I didn't know how to, <laughs> didn't know how to deal with that. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, emotional regulation was, was not something that, uh, really came to the forefront for me until Blizzard. Um, I almost got fired from Blizzard for uh, sort of wearing my emotions on my sleeves and, and uh, yeah. you know, being very, you know, openly vocal and, and critical about certain things. And, um, you know, I, I thankfully uh, learned a better way and, and um, you know, had a mentor sort of help coach and, and develop me, you know, more in that way. Um, and uh, I'm so thankful for it because otherwise I wouldn't be who I am today. And, and I think, you know, part of that goal, the goal that we have is like, how do we help bring that learning as opposed to almost getting fired from, you know, uh, a job you really cherish or, you know, some kind of, of group or community that you really are in love with. How do we how do we help kids develop those skills much earlier in life and, and kind of get on a path towards developing, you know, lifelong relationships? Kevin, I just want to say I, I really appreciate the conscientiousness of the answer you gave before. And I almost sort of gave a little bit of a trick question, but so sorry about that. Um, but my my nephews, I I love them so much and um, they love video games too. But my sister and her husband, they're also pretty conscientious about how much screen time that they get. And one thing that I see in games that's so different now than when, I mean, even just when I was a kid, uh, is there's such commercialization and the drive for money makes it so that all of these games are so uh, oriented around keeping the player involved and um, and trying to get every last cent. So when I played uh, Angry Birds as a kid, it was a simple game and you would throw the bird at the pigs and break down their towers and that was it. And you could pretty much play all of it. I don't think costing anything. I mean, the game originally may be was 99 cents and that was it, but it was a one-time purchase. But now that version of the game is not available. There's only the second Angry Birds and my nephew was playing this game and you know, it's supposed to be fun, but he wasn't having fun because he had to get a certain amount of points so that he could get the apple to feed um, his little baby bird, which he had named after himself. He called it <laughs> Junior. And, <laughs> and, I mean, it's really cute, but at the same time, it was making him feel so emotionally distressed because little Junior was like starving in the game. And he would say, mommy, he's so hungry. I have to keep playing so I can feed him. Oh. And, like, he needed to go to bed, and he was so tired. He was so tired. No. But he didn't want a junior to be hungry. <laughs> and, of course, the solution is pay money, buy the points so that you can get the apple. And I was just like, this is messed up, dude. Like, this game is not good for him. It's not making him happy. It's not fun. But it is addictive. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's ethical game design, especially stuff that's oriented for kids. So I'm I'm glad that you think about that stuff. Yeah, and that's a perfect example of sort of not quality screen time, right? So uh, one of the things that when we think about things like the number of hours of screen time or the quantity, right, the quality is really, uh, uh, I would argue, more important um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, what they're doing in that time. Uh, because, you know, like, like you know, anything, right, game design and technology, like, like you were saying, Alex, right, it's a double-edged sword. It can be used for really good purposes or really terrible purposes. And, you know, a, a big part of, of games and, and game design or a big uh, sort of area of it, right, Right? Is that sort of Skinner box like dopamine? Uh, you know, what's how am I going to get the next hit? Um, or like you said, uh, that sounds very emotionally manipulative. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, with the yeah. little bird, right? And and certainly, you know, that's uh, and that's something that we try to be really conscientious of. Uh, like I feel like 
you know, when we come up with an idea or we talk about something, it's like, well, but is that like, you know, okay for kids or parents, right? We don't want to be exploitative of parents too, right? We were just talking about this last week um, around something we were discussing where it's like, well, you know, we also don't want to like paywall parents out of, uh, uh, you know, experiences that they could have with their children. Um, so, you know, it's a really interesting balance to strike with, uh, you know, because we, we are not, you know, a lot of educational games might be funded by say, you know, uh, uh, a government or, you know, especially outside of the US or or university, right? So, um, or, or perhaps some kind of grant, but that's not our model. So it's a, a really interesting thing to, to talk about is how we have a model, right? Where we can sort of have this this ethical uh, uh, sort of business, right? Where we're, we're generating value uh, um, as people are, um, you know, giving us money for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that term quality of, of screen time as well. Mm-hmm. That's why I won't play MMOs anymore. It's- only the quality of the timing there if it's not played with people you're close to it's just low high time low quality rather mm-hmm. than a 30 minute or two hour game that just has me you know a short a short hike phenomenal mm-hmm. four hours mm-hmm. you're done <laughs> i had that one on a syllabus last semester <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's a great one yeah i want to i want to add on on the topic um you know it, it's it's been something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about um you know reflecting on the state of the games industry and the state of games and and sort of the business model of games right like gaming is is larger than film and uh music combined i think uh uh sort of in the last several years and um you know there's there's a sort of trend of of microtransactions and monetization that um you know games have have moved towards which have become really effective sort of wealth transfer mechanisms which is like how do we sort of get as much money out of our player as as possible uh, and, you know, kind of continue to invest, you know, some amount of that back into creating new game experiences. But, um, you know, for for kids like those are really unhealthy. Um, we've even seen some, you know, children's educational yeah. products that have had really, um, you know, I'll dare say predatory type of monetization practices where they do create that pinch uh, with the parent, which is like, hey, mommy, I need some money so I can do this thing. Right. Like. That's really gross. Um, you know, yeah. just come out and yeah. say that. It's, it's, uh, yeah. You know, and, and I think that banned that's it for a reason. What's that? Europe's banned it for a reason. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Its games can't even have loot boxes in them, period. Yep. Um, and it's, it's something that's really difficult, uh, when there are not a lot of, you know, business models that are not doing that today, uh, or you have games that are made for adults, right? And primarily, I would say, I don't know, 99% of games that are made today are made for adults. They're not made for kids. But what do we inevitably do? We're like, oh, we play games growing up. We want to have our kids experience this game. Let's go give them this experience. And then it's like, wait, how many times are you asking me for money every day? Like, why can't you make any more progress? You know, the paywalls in, in games um, you know, are, are really frustrating for me. I remember um, seeing some of them in, in Clash Royale when, when that game first started to implement yeah. uh, the paywall. I was like, wait a minute, like I was happy to pay you 20 bucks, like, you know, for, for a one-time thing, but now you want me to pay you 20 bucks every like three months. Uh, come on. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Kelly, Kevin, it has been so nice talking to you. Um, it's really great to be able to talk to some individuals with a lot of expertise and experience with children's uh, games and entertainment and learning and um, so thank you so much for your time. It's It's been great to talk to you today. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you both so much for having us. Yeah, this has been really fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. Great to catch and, up, Alex. Uh, yeah, it's great to catch up too. And Kelly, Kevin, I'm really glad I introduced the two of you. I thought it was a little bit of a gamble at the time, but uh, you guys were value aligned and everything at that point just worked itself out. And I, I think that I, if there's something I wanted to say about that, right, it's put people together who have aligned values and they'll figure out the rest, right? I didn't sit there being like, oh, you need to talk to Kelly. She's going to do the X, Y, and Z. I'm like, just, I don't know. You should go talk to this person. She'll probably be a great connection or resource for you. And then you figure out the rest, right? And so much of this industry and life itself is about who you know, not just who you know, but how much you care about what they're going through and putting them in a situation that will help them move forward through whatever they're in. That's, that's really the secret. People ask me, Alex, how are you so social? I don't think of myself super social, right? I just think about what other people need. How can I put them next to someone else who might be able to help them with that? And that's it. That's it. You're very empathetic, um, Alex. 
So, uh, it's it's been a journey. It's been a journey. I, there's, there, there was literally a period of time where I blocked a lot of that out because it was so overwhelming for me and for some rough days. But um, mm -hmm. that's another topic, another top podcast. Uh, Kelly, before we go, uh, you said you were ASU. Was that in Phoenix? That, uh, yeah, it was uh, in Tempe. Yeah. Okay. So I was fun. Actually, um, Ari and I have a mutual friend out in Tempe. Actually, we just flew out to oh, yeah. uh, Arizona out there and actually walked past the ASU uh, building. Yeah. Um, wow, that, that is a beautiful, beautiful school. So you yeah, gave up, the campus is wild out there. Yeah, it is enormous. So you know, what? you gave up a really phenomenal uh, opportunity. Take another phenomenal opportunity. I can't wait to see what you two guys you do together. So, all right. Before we send off, uh, do you guys have any social media that you would like to plug here or anything like that that I can put at the top of the video? Um, sure. Yeah, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at uh, at Kelly M Tran. Uh, I don't tweet that much, but I do sometimes. Uh, I can kind of plug my Twitch stream. <laughs> of course, yes, you can. of course. Please, <laughs> anything that you want. We'll put, the link, um, we'll put the link right below the video so everyone can watch right, the stream. All right, sweet. Yeah, uh, that is Twitch.tv/sweaterwolf. Sweaterwolf. Yeah. There's a story. Yes. Well, actually, so you you may you probably heard jangling and saw the little creature moving around. So it's my dog Cass. Um, and so I got I got my name, uh, and people ask me about it all the time because one time I was looking at him and I'm like, we had a sweater on him because he's you know he's a small dog, he gets cold, and it just you know looks so absurd. And I was like, this thing used to be a wolf, and like now we just have a sweater <laughs> on him. He's like a little sweater wolf. Um, so he's he's the inspiration for it. That's I've a tried delight. To, I, I've tried to explain Twitch to him. I don't think he he gets it. But uh. his legacy well, I... will live on, though. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I'm pretty antisocial, so the only thing I'll plug is uh, at Evolved Play, which is uh, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, so you can check us out there. Yeah, I know. I should be in a better company, woman. No, like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm all about self promotion. Uh, do you? Um, but uh, yeah. All right, well, everyone, follow Kelly's Twitch stream and follow the company uh, Evolved Play. And both of you, thank you so much for being on the show today. And remember uh, to like and subscribe. Comment below if you have any questions. And I hope that you guys all have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. All right, Bye, you too. Thank have you. a good one. Cheers. Bye.